welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I'm Jen, Jennifer, uh, never Jenny. Uh, I am the research services manager at the Rhode Island Historical Society. I work in the research center uh, on Hope Street, and I help patrons when they want to come in and use our manuscript collection, or I help with reference questions, whether they want to find out if they're related to Roger Williams or not, because if you're from Rhode Island, chances are you are. Mm, Fun fact. (laughs) Hi, my name is Jared Bichetti, and I'm the Director of Historical Research and Content Development at the Rhode Island Historical Society. Um, In a nutshell, my work, um, I coordinate our various research fellowship programs. I work with our Deputy Executive Director, as editor of the Rhode Island History Journal, which is Rhode Island's only published statewide history journal. We publish twice a year. And I also uh, oversee and curate the research initiatives and programs of the organization as a whole. And my preferred pronouns are he, him, his. Thank you both for joining me. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about the Rhode Island History Navigator Tool, which is an online resource that the Historical Society created for Rhode Island researchers, uh, or it's available on the internet, so I mean, or not Rhode Island researchers, <laughs> but Ro- a Rhode Island-specific resource. Yes. Um, but before we get into that, let's start off, as we always do, with what have you been reading? What have I been reading? A little bit of this, a little bit of that. <laughs> uh, whenever possible, not the news, so I'll leave it at that. Um, I typically read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I'm, I'm currently, uh, reading a book now that is titled Love of Freedom, Black Women in Colonial and Revolutionary New England, has a lot to do with my larger dissertation research, which looks at enslaved and freed Black women's lives in New England. I'm working on completing my dissertation at Rutgers University currently, uh, as well as working here at the Historical Society. Um, but in terms of fiction, I just finished a really great book called The Other Black Girl. It was very good. It has a interesting plot. I won't give too much away, but it was nice to kind of get back into the the fiction world again, given how much nonfiction I read on a day-to-day basis in my work and in, with my scholarship. Well, okay. best of luck with your yeah. doctorate. You. Uh, I need it. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum. I Since I work in history all the time, I do like a good historical fiction or nonfiction book, um, but I, I am, you know, sci-fi, mystery, suspense. So uh, I'm a fan of Mira Grant, who also goes by uh, Shannon McGuire. Um, She wrote a short story called Rolling in the Deep. Um, It's about a documentary crew uh, for like a Discovery Channel that goes out to prove the existence of mermaids and um, unfortunately finds them and they're not so nice. And (laughs) she wrote a follow-up full novel uh, called Into the Drowning Deep about a second ship that goes to look for the first ship. And uh, it's just, it's fun. It's great. Um, I love self-contained mysteries where they're stuck on a ship and dealing with mysteries from the deep. Um, So, yeah. Although I really for mermaid. Oh, <laughs> she didn't. She did. <laughs> it's a thing, or at least it's a thing if you're on the corner of Twitter that I'm on, which is like <laughs> costuming and cosplay. People are dressing up as mermaids. Mermaid. Right. So 
Very thematic, very appropriate. <laughs> Who knew I was going to be so on point? I'm impressed with myself. <laughs> but that sounds really good. That sounds like a lot of fun. Right now, I'm kind of like in between books. I started a book that I thought I was going to like, but I was like really struggling to get into it. And I almost don't want to say what book it is because I feel like Dave and some other of my coworkers are going to be like, what do you mean you couldn't get into this book? (laughs) Well, now you have to tell us. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So it it was a conversation that I had recently on the podcast with some other coworkers who came on and we were kind of talking about hopeful sci-fi and I had just finished uh, a duology by the same author so I decided to jump into her like I think it was her first series is the one that she really got popular with um, which is Becky Chambers Long Way to a Small Angry Planet Mm. and I I don't know it might be one of those like did not finish that I do eventually maybe in a different headspace go back and finish But, like, I couldn't get past the fact that it reminded me of a lot of other sci-fi that definitely did come before. That I was like, that sounds almost exactly like blank. Right. Uh, There's no new stories under the sun since Gilgamesh. Like, we all understand that it's this real, especially genre fiction can be this real kind of, like, overlapping of ideas. (laughs) Um, So, I don't know. Maybe it's just that, like, I'm too absorbed in the genre and the tropes that it was hard for me to get into something that felt like it was really taking from things that that came before. I would say from the little bit that I got through it, I thought the aliens that she had created thus far were very unique (laughs) and interesting and unique and interesting cultures. And so, like, that's why I'm willing to give it a try again. Like we said before, uh, this a conversation because we just changed all computer systems at the library. I'm going to blame that for everything. Maybe I was too stressed about that and <laughs> unable to get into this book. Um, but because I wanted to, because everybody else like who recommended it to me was like, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you loved her other stuff, you'll love this. And so moving on, have you guys been watching anything interesting lately? I'm a trash TV watcher. I pretty much watch, uh, you know, all the cooking shows. So I either watch like cooking shows or dirty, dirty, deep, dark detective shows. <laughs> like Vera. Okay, I love when Vera. you started with dirty, I didn't know where that was going. Gritty. I should say okay. gritty. Sorry. Yeah. But I do. I, I love my subscription to BritBox. I just finished the season three of Grace which is a detective drama. I'm not trying to yuck anyone's yum on here, but I was just like, where, where is she where going? Because I, I mean, sometimes the Brit- there's like the British comedies that are oh. like sometimes very, um, very brash and yes. stuff. When you said trash TV, I like my brain goes to reality shows. Yeah. I don't think cooking shows are trash TV. Uh, okay, I guess I should say light. Yeah, like I don't want I'm either that's what I mean by either like watching yeah. a detective show or I'm watching like, you know, how close can I beach, you know, buying real estate on beaches, like which one, <laughs> you know, house hunters yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. It's like <laughs> how close can I beach? That's how a great name. <laughs> yes. I love that. Yes. <laughs> I'll have to look up how close can I beach after this. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm definitely with you with the cooking show, even though I watch less cooking shows now that I no longer live with my parents and therefore no longer have access to cable television. Uh, Like, I don't really seek out cooking shows, like, on a streaming service. I'm, mm -hmm. like, streaming watching. I'll be like, oh, well, I should finish, you know, X, Y, and Z 
hot show that's on whatever <laughs> streaming service. Um, but I, it's definitely something that I did enjoy when I did still have access to cable. Um, you can find cookie shows on all the streamings. Oh, yeah. No, I know. It's like I said, it's just not something I seek out, but it's like one of those things <laughs> that when you were channel surfing, like it's like, oh, okay, oh like yeah. on a weekend, it would be like, oh, okay, the mm-hmm. kitchen is on, and that seems about the best thing on. I guess I don't really even think of cooking shows on streaming, even though I know they're out there. They're definitely everywhere. You can find them. I love, I love Back to Basics with Ina Garden. That's one of my favorites. Um, I tend to watch it late at night, though, when I'm trying not to eat again. <laughs> is inherently antithetical to the point, I think. Yeah. I always become hungry. I also really like, oh gosh, what is her name? Um, Nancy Fuller, Farmhouse Rules. That's a good one, too. She's a lives in upstate New York and makes all these really unhealthy, but delicious <laughs> recipes, fun food network stuff. Um, so when I have the remote, which is not that often because my partner tends to kind of be the person who dictates what we watch sometimes just because he has very, I'm usually reading or he will be, you know, very adamant that we watch such and such. We just finished the Anna Nicole Smith documentary on Netflix, which was very sad. Um, interesting yet I would say not that altogether that eye-opening I feel like you kind of see what you get with her life which is sad the media certainly made quite a lot of money on publicizing the train wreck of a life that she lived sadly um I also just watched I Want to Dance with Somebody which was the Whitney Houston biopic it was really good the music was fabulous love Whitney Houston um also very sad life too in a lot of the same ways as Anna Nicole I blame that movie for making me watch The Bodyguard last weekend. Oh, <laughs> which is so good, yet so long. It's long. It's, I mean, it's entertaining, but I, I don't know if I would say it's good. Right. <laughs> I'm also a huge fan, and I'll watch it on repeat, I don't care, of the like 1980s, early 1990s Robert Stack uh, episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. I love, love that show. And Freebie just got the entire collection. So I basically am either watching that or I just started Six Feet Under again. It's been a long time since I've watched that. So also a beautiful show. They're just, I don't mind watching the same things over again if it's quality. Yeah. Although that's funny that you watch Unsolved Mysteries. I can't. If I start watching a documentary, I usually pause it and Google it and find out like and then if you the, fall into a Wikipedia hole or that or just like I want to make sure that you know this guy is prosecuted before I commit to this and <laughs> he gets away with it at the end or something like that no, or, like, no. watch, or watch a whole thing and then like and we still don't know who he is and it's yeah. like I don't want <laughs> you have to wait for the update at the end it'll be like update <laughs> they were tracked down and found or they weren't well there was a dateline or 2020 the other day the body in the barrel like a barrel that was found um in Nevada, a lake has been receding. So it's like bodies and things that were dumped in the lake, like not even that long ago, like 50, 60 years ago, the water has receded so much that everything's being exposed. And, you know, at the end of the show, oh yeah, we still haven't identified him. I'm like, why did you even do the show then? Come on, (laughs) wait until you identify him and then tell me all about it. I don't want to know what's going on at all. Yeah, I'm not an unsolved mystery kind of girl. (laughs) Now they have uh, just the Netflix adaptation of Unsolved Mysteries, as well as a podcast, which is equally creepy and mostly unsolved, Jen, so you would really dislike the podcast. (laughs) But I'm trying to think, is that the one with uh, 
Riker from Next Gen, and he would come on and he would explain, like, it was all about, like, paranormal and weird stuff, but I guess it wasn't Unsolved Mysteries, but now I can't think of what it is. I just remember that it would be, like, him in a room with a fireplace or something, like a very generic, like, soundstage. He would, like, lead in these stories and then it would go to, like, a dramatic reenactment of whatever that could have oh, been. Oh, Beyond Belief. Factor okay, Factor. yes. That I was the that one show. I was thinking of. That was a good one. All right, there we go. That unsolved mystery solved. Yes. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. The library is launching a new collection, School Tools. Check out tools, toys, games, and interesting objects for learning and play from the Central Library, including a microscope, toy cast register, robots, and more. The tools are meant to support parents who are teaching at home and encourage kids to pursue their passions. If you have suggestions or feedback for this new collection, email emily at emilybrown at cranstonlibrary.org. Do you enjoy knitting or crocheting? Join us at the Auburn branch every Monday at 2 p.m. for their knitting and crochet circle. Work on a project, get help with something new, or knit for a charity cause. Knitters and crocheters of all levels of experience are invited to join, no registration required. For questions, email auburn at cranstonlibrary.org. And on that note, I think we can move on because I want us to have enough time to talk about the history navigator tool. Um, But first, I thought I'd start off by asking um, you both, whoever would like to jump in and answer, um, what exactly is it that the Rhode Island Historical Society does? I know that's kind of a big question, but if people are like, I hear about all these historical societies, but I don't know exactly like what they do and how they're different from other historical collections or, or, or things like that. Um, I just was having to draft this up earlier today, so it's fresh on my mind. <laughs> so the Rhode Island Historical Society is among one of the oldest historical societies in the country. The first that was founded was the Mass Historical in 1791, and we were established in 1822, and we are currently the only statewide history organization Um, And the mission of the Rhode Island Historical Society is to honor, interpret, and share Rhode Island's past to enrich the present and inspire the future. Um, We have four properties. Uh, We have two museums, a research center, and uh, two historic houses. Our administrative offices are located in the former home of Senator Nelson Aldrich, who was a United States senator uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, That house was gifted to us in 1974 and has acted as our administrative headquarters as well as an exhibition space. Um, We also have the John Brown House Museum, which is located in uh, the College Hill neighborhood of Providence. Um, And the John Brown House Museum was built between 1786 and 1788. Um, It opened its doors to the public in 1942 um, and for a very long time was primarily uh, viewed and visited um, as a kind of a homage to the 18th century, um, you know, elegant home. Uh, A lot of uh, material culture individuals and scholars would come and admire the furniture and the different, you know, architectural designs of the house. 
but we really in the past 20 years have repositioned it as a experiential hub to study Rhode Island history. Um, and we're currently in the process of reinterpreting the house to position it as a site uh, for the study of Rhode Island history until about 1850. So um, over the course of the next 18 to 24 months, we'll be transforming the, the museum space to um, acknowledge the, you know, the diverse lived experiences that contributed to the early history of Rhode Island, whether that be enslaved labor or indigenous labor, um, Rhode Island's global connections in the China trade, um, in the Atlantic slave trade, et cetera. Um, we also have the Museum of Work and Culture, which is located in um, Woonsocket, which is um, broadly speaking, uh, a uh, it, it recognizes the French Canadian immigration story to Rhode Island and specifically in the Blackstone Valley. Um, you know, it, at one time, um, I, I wanna say that 70% of Woonsocket's population was foreign born and were specifically were French Canadian. Um, and so there's a very large ancestral, you know, pull from French, from Quebec and French, French Canada that drew so many people to Rhode Island to work in the mills and other industries in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and then, Jen, I thought you could talk a bit more about the Robinson Research Center where you are. Um, sure. We are the uh, library portion and the research center of the Historical Society. We're in a building that Originally was a church, and then it was converted into the Takwatan branch of Providence Public Library. And I think we took it over in the 60s. So we have four floors. Uh, the first floor is what we call the reading room, where people can come in. Um, it mostly it has genealogies, so if you fam people are looking for family, uh, ancestors, descendants, etc., um, we also have like town histories and vital records. We also have a large microfilm collection, which has every Rhode Island paper printed. And then we have, you know, three floors. I'm gesturing with my hands like people can see what I'm doing. Um, three <laughs> floors above us uh, with um, manuscript material, which consists of like diaries, um, business ledgers, um, personal papers, correspondence, uh, Graphics material, which consists of architectural drawings, photographs, maps. And then we also have a very large um, film and audio collection. Um, we have a lot of the film from um, like WNPR, which is a lot of newsreels, which consists mostly of like B footage um, and interviews. Like there's no, it's not a televised newscast where you can see a, you know, a talking head and then a news story. It's basically just what was happening behind the scenes. So yeah, we are open to the public for walk-ins and uh, myself and another uh, librarian work in the reading room and we help people find what they're looking for, whether it's um, a student coming in to work on a paper, um, high school, college, both, um, a family doing some traveling and wants to find out if they have any Rhode Island connections. Um, we have traveling scholars and professors that come in, like Jared, to work on their dissertations or thesis. Um, so, I mean, we get a wide variety of people that come through our doors, and uh, I say 99% of them leave happy and have found something, but there's always somebody that's one. Uh, Somebody actually came in and was like, do you have any footage of Roger Williams landing? It doesn't have to be in color. <laughs> um, so not everybody is happy, but we tried it. We, we aimed to please. That's an unsolved mystery, too. We somehow haven't been able to find that footage. Why? <laughs> Why from the Patuxent River, 1636. Yep, I haven't been able to find that. <laughs> 
just to give you and your listeners a bit more kind of data, um, we have over 30 staff. Our collections are quite large. We have over 25,000 objects, 5,000 manuscripts, um, and 100,000 books and printed items, as well as Jen was mentioning, 400,000 photographs and maps, and nearly 9 million feet of motion picture film. Um, and we serve between 25 to 30,000 visitors in person and approximately 130,000 virtual visitors um, per year. And so we offer a number of different services. We have our, our research collections. We also have an entire education uh, and curriculum department, which works with the Rhode Island Department of Education to develop new and engaging curriculum. Um, and recently, the, the state commissioner has endorsed a standardized set of, of curriculum objectives. So our new director of education is working very hard to ensure that the materials that we have can be um, assessed and utilized to create, you know, engaging and um, innovative curriculum for K through 12 students throughout the state. And so you had mentioned about your, you know, your digital visitors. And so I think that leads us nicely into the Rhode Island Historical Navigator Tool. So um, could you tell us a little bit more about what that is and what people can use it for? Sure. Um, I was approached about, uh, I want to say maybe two years ago, um, by our Deputy Executive Director, uh, Rick Ring. There's Volume 5, uh, we are of the New England, a bibliography of its history. Volume 5 is Rhode Island focused. Um, so we got some funding to create this database that we call the Navigator to have a repository for all this information. Um, so my job was to create the data from the book and then find um, either online links to uh, digital resources or for the first volume, I scanned a lot of things that we were the sole proprietors of. It's interesting, and I learned I learned a lot. I mean, I've been at the Historical Society for over 11 years, but just going, combing through these, and it's, they did a very thorough job. Um, it was done in the 70s by this committee, and they went around the state to all the different libraries and historical societies mm. and little reading rooms and stuff and just found what they thought was interesting documentation on the history of Rhode Island. Um, so it varies from, you know, a two page newspaper article in the Providence Sunday Journal about the burning of the Gatsby to an article in the Rhode Island History Journal, you know, a 10-page article about the burning of the Gatsby, two books on the burning of the Gatsby. Um, so, you know, we, to the minutia of, mm -hmm. you know, the librarian from the Richmond Library, like, you know, a little article about, you know, people from our town. Um, so, it's really detailed. Um, it would be, it's great for anybody that just wants to learn anything more about Rhode Island, but the the database is searchable by subject, by time period, um, by geographic location. So if you just want to learn about, you know, your t city or town, um, you can search by author and title. Um, so it's, I think it's a valuable resource um, for people to find alternate sources of information um, than the ones you're going to find just going to, you know, regular Google or to the library or even in the card catalog. Some of these are so distinct right. and um, specific that they aren't going to be there. So we have definitely um, expanded upon the first volume. There are five supplemental volumes um, that 
actually that information is going to be going up on the on the website soon that continue on like this the first volume ended in 1980 that's when they did all their work and then we have you know the 1990s um i think the last one goes to 2010 mm-hmm. and then um jared is working on a committee to find anything printed since 2010 to you know add to it um but I think it's something that people just want to go, you know, you can go on and kind of mess around. You can browse by subject if you want, or you can just, you know, look and see what the different items are and, you know, find something that interests you. Um, you know, there's visuals, there's links, like I said, mm-hmm. to an online resource. Um, there's sometimes a link to our catalog resource, so you could come in and find it. Um, or there'll be a PDF of the actual item from our collection. Yeah. I think, you know, we were fortunate to receive a grant from the Rhode Island Office of Library and Information Services, um, who are using funds from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to fund this project. And, you know, Jen gave uh, an overview of, of volume five of the bibliographies of New England, which are these just massive green books that for years, unless you knew about them, I for one didn't until I heard about the Navigator project before actually becoming a staff member here. Um, you know, these massive books with just, just about every type of bibliographic entry you could imagine. Um, and so the Committee for a New England Bibliography, I believe, uh, was based out of Boston University, began in earnest in response to the celebration of the Bicentennial in 1976. And for four years, you know, this is before the internet, this is before, uh, you know, widespread utilization of interlibrary loan and other loaning, you know, services. This committee drove, as Jen was saying, you know, from repository to repository and asking for just about every single, you know, secondary source that they had on New England history broadly. So the first four volumes were each dedicated to different New England states. Um, Volume five was Rhode Island. And then subsequently, they began producing um, bibliographies of New England history. So about the region. Um, you know, with, with the state histories, the way that they're organized and the way in which we are continuing our work with the post-2010 supplement that Jen mentioned, is that we organize it um, in kind of three sections, if you will. The first are general histories about Rhode Island. Um, so they can have, you know, the history of Irish Catholic immigration to, to Rhode Island. That would fit into the broader theme of just state histories. Um, then we, uh, the the editors of the, the bibliography decided that it would make sense for, you know, a more granular focus to look at county history. So, um, you know, the history of water pollution in Washington County, Rhode Island, um, that would fall under the second section of, of the bibliography. And then the third is by town. So histories of Coventry, um, you know, a lot of these Arcadia publishing and other smaller history press like uh, publications that, you know, individuals we know uh, are often very hungry to learn more about their communities in which they've lived or that, you know, they've spent their entire lives. And so uh, the, the third section of the bibliography's organization allowed us to find a home for those, but also to kind of centralize where all of this information could be found. Um, and, you know, I think from, from my conversations with, with Jen and our deputy executive director, Rick, the real goal behind the, the Navigator was to make a database and the most comprehensive collection of writings about Rhode Island history, and to make it all easily accessible. Um, you know, the, the bibliographies, these large green books that I was mentioning, they're no longer in print. They're pretty expensive. You can find them online through the Internet Archive website if you're interested. Um, but, you know, it's it's been so much careful work 
by Jen and others to find all this information, to aggregate it in one central place, and then to do the legwork of scanning and, you know, locating items that we don't have in our collections that but that our partners at other history and heritage organizations to the state might have. And so that's kind of where we are now. Uh, we've, we're adding, um, and thanks to Jen's amazing work, we're ahead of schedule. Um, and we are you know, trying to work with our other partners throughout the state to identify things that we've missed from the pre-2010 period, as well as identify publications from 2010 onward that are uh, germane to Rhode Island history and that we think would be useful to our members and to students and researchers interested in Rhode Island history writ large. So is there anything else that either of you want our audience to know about the History Navigator tool before we wrap up? Can I give, I'll give an example of how useful it was for me. I'll just say, so my dissertation is you get torn down all of these rabbit holes that you never imagined. That's just the nature of historical research, right? So um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, my, my dissertation looks at enslaved women's lives and labors in, in New England in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And I found this diary at the Rhode Island Historical Society years ago um, that was written by a reverend in South Kingstown named James McSparren. And so the diary is from about 1743 to 1751. Um, the original, I will say, is in the collections of the University of Rhode Island, but we have a transcript, uh, transcribed volume in our collections. And so I found it and was just fascinated with how much detail the reverend provides about the daily activities of the enslaved men and women who lived and labored in his household. And he's saying, you know, they're almost like daily entries about the weather, about the sermons he's preaching, but also the labors that they're performing. And he is just cultivating apples left and right. The months of August, September, October, just, you know, apple production, the making of of cider, which was the most commonly consumed drink in colonial Rhode Island, given how well apples grow. Um, so I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to know a bit more for my dissertation for context purposes of, you know, what apples were native to Rhode Island? What apples would these women have been growing, picking, and then making into cider? So I logged on to the Navigator site. I clicked apples as a subject heading and found like three or four articles related to the history of apples and apple growth in Rhode Island. Most the of greening were, apple, right? The Rhode Island greening apple. <laughs> And so this is that weird rabbit hole that I had no idea I would broach, but arguably the first apple species that were brought to Rhode Island were, you know, a lot of people think of Roger Williams as kind of the founder and in a lot of ways, rightfully so, but there was an also kind of angry, kind of radical Puritan named William Blackstone who came to what is now modern day Cumberland in 1634. So he's actually one of the first Europeans to settle in Rhode Island. So he basically, he had the right idea. I mean, sometimes I feel like William Blackstone, he wanted to set up a study in the wilderness where he could read his books and be left alone. Uh So that's a vibe in my world. (laughs) The original cottage core, right? (laughs) So Blackstone brings apple seeds with him and it's considered to be kind of the first successful introduction of European species of apples to Rhode Island. And you know, there have been several kind of like cooperative extension publications that the University of Rhode Island has done to look at the history, the growth. Uh, Rhode Island is still known, as Jen said, for our Rhode Island greening apple, um, which 
grows very well here, but also in other parts of the Northeast. And so all that's to say is, you know, it's, it's amazing how one click on the Navigator site allowed me access to so many different things that have helped my research in so many um, unexpected, yet very, pardon the pun, fruitful ways. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting in that there are, there. it's very thorough and there's a lot of um, original church information for a lot of churches that aren't even around anymore. Like, there's many that were in Bristol that aren't around anymore, but uh, a lot of church information, um, a hundred thousand articles on the Newport Tower or the old stone mill, every different version of who they think built it, you'll find one <laughs> there. Um, and I, just, I don't know. I, I just, I guess it's just because it's, you know, passion project that I've been working on for so long and part of my life. Um, I would actually really love, there is a way to, um, make comments on it so i would love it if you you know your listeners just went around in there and you know played a bit and said this is great i love it uh if it could be this way i'd be even better or any any information feedback would be awesome yeah very appreciated and it's still you know we're, we're we're launching it publicly only recently so there's still work to be done so you know we're excited for people to increase our foot traffic and for people to hopefully find this resource helpful. But as Jen was saying, you know, I think any suggestions or any bugs that people might encounter, it's very still very much a work in progress. And we're hoping to continue to refine the scope and the technical elements of the site to ensure that it's as accessible as possible. And so the formal URL for the site is navigator, N-A-V-I-G-A-T-O-R dot R-I-H-S org and there once you reach the landing page you'll be able to search the site um, there's the home page there's the browse which has uh, by topic and by time period and by place as Jen was mentioning we actually um, there our partners uh, worked on helping us with a search tips page so people who are interested in using the resource but aren't exactly sure how to start or how to narrow the parameters of their search they can click that and find more and there's also a very short instructional video that our research library staff Jen I believe you're featured in the video aren't you in terms of utilizing it or your voice at some point oh boy I don't know (laughs) so there's a how-to video there as well Right. Fantastic. Um, so we wrap up the show with the segment I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a library or bookish related question. And I thought to keep it on theme with Rhode Island history, what is a period that you think specifically in Rhode Island would be interesting to go back to and experience? And in the case of, of you guys who work in history, experience and probably study. Hmm. I don't know, Jared, we were talking about this the other day, and I said, I could, as long as I could go back with my modern right. conveniences, I'll go anywhere. But, okay, I'm going to answer. Yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> caveat, you will be personally safe. Like, whatever well, I have kind of... Toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Not if it's 2020, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah. true. That is true. Okay. Indoor plumbing is important. Let's see. Let go back to. Um, I th- 
This is off the top of my head. I haven't really given this any thought. Uh, Newport in the Gilded Age, mm. when you know the Rockefellers yeah, and the Vanderbilts were there in, in their little teeny tiny summer cottages. <laughs> <laughs> Our guests are using quote fingers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I think that would be that would be kind of glamorous to do for a little while. Rhode Island is such an interesting place. I don't know if it's just because I've been, I'm working with the Newport Historical Society right now on an exhibit that kind of displays our small state's big history over the course of the past three plus centuries um, for a, a traveling panel exhibit that will be going throughout the state later this year. And I was doing some reading into like the founding, you know, communities or settlements of Rhode Island in the late 1630s and 40s. And I would love to just sit at the table and listen to Anne Hutchinson spiel all of her thoughts about religion, her gripes with the Commonwealth and the Puritan church, you know, kind of be a fly on the wall in Portsmouth or, um, you know, uh, even with, you know, it's, it's fascinating to think how far ahead of their times these people were in terms of understanding uh, a very commonplace. And I think, um, you know, uh, kind of taken for granted sentiment of separation of church and state. But then that was such a radical idea that Rhode Island would garner all of these really horrible, yet like hilarious nicknames. Like <laughs> a, one of my favorites, I believe, was attributed to Cotton Mather. And it said the sewer, one of them was the sewer of New England. And the other was uh, basically the kind of the, the container. Uh, oh gosh, it was something about like the, the barrel of where the heretics go, something along those lines. <laughs> oh, Error Island was another one that people would call us, you know? Um, and so as a person who's just interested in early New England history, I think that would be fascinating to go back in time and learn more about, but also just to really try to understand where a lot of commonplace ideas like the separation of church and state, how we can really track those back to being very inherently Rhode Island ideals. I mean, Rhode Island was the first Western, I say that in air quotes, given what we know about Eurocentrism and everything else, Rhode Island being the first Western civil society to differentiate between religious and civil authority. Our charter of 1643 or 44, uh, even the voters in Providence in 1637 decided that they would convene and discuss civil matters, but those that were religious were to be left to the individual. And so I think it's 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 been on my mind recently, but then also just to think about, you know, the price that so many of these people paid, like to be banished from from a place forever for your your views. Um, I still think that there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from that period in terms of toleration and of of understanding people of different walks of life today. I am so shallow. I want to go back and party. And Jared wants to go back and learn about the foundation of our country and where we went wrong. And... Oh. That's no, okay. I mean, I'll fast forward. Like if, if we're talking about shows, Quantum Leap was also one of my favorites. So I'll zoom forward, Jen, and party with you at the Rockefellers. Okay. But also tell them why treating people of color and everybody else who are their servants is wrong. So, you know, we can do both. Like, okay. You know, the social justice and partying all at once. 
to make you feel a little bit better, Jen, I was like gonna base my answers basically on the time periods of the clothes I liked the best. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm kind of torn between the 40s and the 50s because I would say kind of that's where my like current aesthetic is kind of mm. at. I will say we have a costume section of the Navigator website where you can find mm. information about costumes and clothing in Rhode Island history. So <laughs> It's really all-encompassing, corn husking, <laughs> cycling. It's so funny. We historians are just so weird. We find any topic that we think everybody wants to know about and we write about it, like apples in Rhode Island. But that's like, I think, the corners of history that really appealed to me. I mean, like, I enjoyed history in school, but sometimes it was a little bit arduous for me because I was like, I don't want to hear about all these wars. <laughs> like, I want to know what everyday women were doing. You know, what were they wearing? What was their everyday life like? Right. Um, I, like, fell down a rabbit hole on YouTube one night of these videos that just show women getting dressed from different time periods. And so it's recreation, sure. well, obviously, because there's no video, just like there's no video of Roger <laughs> William landing in Rhode Island. Um, but I just find it fascinating i find it fascinating all of the different shapewear required to get the different silhouettes uh, from yeah. from what was stylish in a different time period um what like materials they would have had mm -hmm. at hand and like in certain time periods where class was very tied i mean it always is kind of tied up in what you're wearing just now we do it by like brand recognition <laughs> where, <laughs> where before it was like this thing of just like certain patterns and colors and being able to afford certain fabrics now we can't even think about being able to afford certain fabrics being like showing that you're of a higher class than someone else <laughs> now it's just like can you afford to shop at certain places right um but yeah i will try to track down whatever kind of like either historical society or college or university put these videos together and include them in the show notes because like I said I find it super interesting <laughs> the Florence Griswold Museum in Connecticut has an ongoing exhibit now one of which was curated by a, a clothing historian Marla Miller who teaches at University of Massachusetts at Amherst and the, I think the exhibit title is something along the lines of like invisible hands and it looks at all of the unseen domestic labor that went into all of the things that you're talking about, dressing, laundering, mending, um, as well as preserving clothing across the centuries. And so the collections that they have there, uh, you know, span the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. And some of the quilts and petticoats that they have are likely attributed to enslaved seamstresses who, who designed and fabricated them. And so it's very much a very ongoing conversation um, and is you know, I think it's interesting to combine social histories of slavery and of labor and of women's history with material culture and history. So it's nice to see the, the marriage of the two. Is that near Mystic, that museum? Yes, it's in Old Lyme. All right. I thought so. Beautiful, beautiful home. Um, one of the foremost experts on just early American costume history, Lynn Bissett, is one of the directors there of their collections curator um and so i would highly recommend it they have a great website as well for visitors who aren't able to make it in person fantastic um so thank you both for joining me and thank you everyone for listening if you'd like to answer our last chapter question or submit a last chapter question suggestion of your own you can reach out to us via email 
at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. You can also reach out to us via social media with the hashtag downtimecpl. If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Elena Rios, Nomi Haig, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent those of the Cranston Public Library. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Cranston Public Library name, in all forms and abbreviation, are the property of its owners and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. The content of this episode is the property of the Cranston Public Library and may not be reproduced without express written permission. Join us next week for more Downtime. Yeah, that was fun. We try. That's the goal.